Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Dr. Ramsey, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure. My name is uh, Dr. Russ Ramsey. I'm a licensed psychologist. Up until recently, I was, well, I guess I'll always be co-founder of the Penn Adult ADHD Treatment and Research Program with uh, Dr. Tony Rostain. Um, but I recently retired from Penn. I'm not stopping by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so I'm no longer affiliated with Penn, but I am uh, started a solo practice, uh, virtual psychology practice, so I can focus on, Penn gave me a lot of opportunities to do a lot of stuff and find out what I really enjoy doing. And now I'm at the point where I'm doing the solo practice so I can really focus on the things I most enjoy doing, like being a guest on a program like this. I'm curious how you got interested in the field of ADHD or just in the understanding of ADHD. I mean, you talk a lot about emotions, which I'm sure we're going to talk about on this show, but I mean, if usually like if I talk to someone and they experience it or they have it, it's typically how people get interested in things. If something happens to them or they experience something, they want to look into it and then there you go. But you said you didn't have ADHD. So I'm curious how you got started on ADHD. I'm one of these people who their calling found them. Um, I, I went to I started at Penn as a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Cognitive Therapy, which is to cognitive behavioral therapy, what the Grand Old Opry is, the country music. And I I was doing my diligent, you know, cognitive therapy for depression, anxiety, learning a whole host of things. And I mentioned before Dr. Tony Rostain, a very um noted psychiatrist in the Philadelphia area. Um Somehow we were connected because he had actually started the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Child and Adolescent ADHD program, and then he moved on to being uh, the head of the Adult Psychiatry Residency program in the the Penn Medical School. Um, and he had this idea for you know he found that you know many of his adult and adolescent patients didn't invariably grow out of ADHD when they reached adulthood. And this was around the time that the book uh, Driven to Distraction was published by Ned Hallowell and John Rady, which was one of the things that put adult ADHD on the map. Tony brought me into his office, shared his idea that he said, you know, he could handle the medications, but he seemed like we needed some sort of talk therapy. And you know, as a cognitive behavioral therapist, it would seem like it was a good fit. And my line for the two of us is everything interests both of us and we can't say no to work. So um, that's how I got into it. And I sometimes say I'm dispositionally lazy because there wasn't that much literature to review at the time. Uh, so that was right up my alley. And we and other other institutions, other, other uh, clinician researchers, Alexander Philipson in Germany, Susie Young and Jessica Bramham in the UK, uh, Mary Salanto, um, Steve Saffron and Susan Spritch up at Harvard were all, you know, sort of... Uh, modifying cognitive behavioral therapy for adult ADHD. And here we are, however many years later it is now, um, talking about it. And for some reason, people still want to get my opinions on things. <laughs> uh, that's how that's how I got into it. It found me. Managing the emotion side, though, like you say, you say your, your coworker said that he could handle the medication side of things, but people still need to talk about it. I mean, with adult ADHD, I knew that, I mean, I thought you just had it for the rest of your life once you were born with it. I didn't know you could grow out of it. I looked and saw that some people do eventually grow out of it, but also I started learning about masking as well, too, if people were trying to, you know, maybe those might mess with the numbers a little bit. I mean, I didn't truly start kind of embracing my personality. I just thought it was my personality and realized that it's ADHD symptoms. So I'm curious if when you have someone that wants to talk about it, is it mostly like adults are dealing with the emotional side of stuff? Because I start noticing that ADHD 
does come with a lot of emotional, not irregularities, but you just experience more, I would say. Right. Well, you know, at first I'll, I'll, I'll cover the, and it's relevant to this, the growing out of it. There are <clears throat> you know, studies tracking children into adulthood um, over time have found that, I mean, the numbers go from maybe about one third um, down to about like 10% of individuals may grow out of it, or at least meaning no longer meeting the full diagnostic criteria. Now, the there's a more recent study that was part of a very well-funded, uh, well-structured study of seven and eight-year-olds with ADHD who got very comprehensive treatments, but they were followed with follow-up evaluation, very thorough evaluations, comprehensive, done by people who knew what they were doing every other year until their mid-20s. And what they found is over time, there would be like an undulating course, like at two years, let's just say at 12 years old, okay, you're sub-threshold for ADHD, or actually probably more likely at 12. You know what, you're still hitting for ADHD, but maybe once they got into 18 or 20, okay, this time you don't meet full criteria. There still may be many symptoms. It would be sort of like, okay, you don't have a fever of 102 anymore. You're at 99.5. So we're not going to call that a fever, but there still might be something going on. It's a clumsy analogy. But at the end of the study, what they found was only 9% of that original sample went sub-threshold and stayed there for the rest of the evaluations. Whereas most people, it might've been just below, just above. Because the thing about ADHD, it's it's very context sensitive because part of our executive functions, which are our self-regulation and are considered a core facet of ADHD, it is about how do we adapt to you know, the environment. So that undulating course. So it, some people do grow out of it in, in so far as they may be asymptomatic, but for most people, it might be sub-threshold, but there still might be some other stuff going on, including, all right, it's great at 22 that I'm not, uh, I don't meet the diagnostic criteria anymore, but I still might not have good organizational skills that I need, or I still might procrastinate. So bringing it back to the cognitive behavioral therapy and it's more than just talking about it. And that was like one of the things that cognitive behavioral therapy um, brought to the table in general in terms of uh, psychotherapy. It was more structured, goal-directed or task-directed. So people coming in for ADHD, it's usually around um, better executive functioning, if you will, because most people don't come in and say, I want to improve my attention. I want to reduce my hyperactivity. I want to be less impulsive. That's there a little bit. Those are the core symptoms. But usually they're going, I'm late for work and I'm getting written up. I know I should have started the report and I end up doing it last minute. I'm always doing extensions on my taxes. My partner says I'm not reliable. These real world things and the underlying skills. So the cognitive behavioral therapy, ours and other groups, really focuses around those executive functioning workarounds. Now, um, like the there's no trade secrets. So the time management skills, the organizational skills, and it's not just parroting back, oh, you really need to start earlier with procrastination. I don't think you knew that before. No, I say, if that's all I bring to the table, I tell my clients, sue me for malpractice, please. You know that. ADHD is an implementation problem. So it's focused on how do we break these things down and have uh, skills and tactics so that you employ these things at these very sensitive times where you can get the most out of it. Now, going back to the other question about 
the emotional regulation piece of the executive functions, uh, which again are a defining feature of ADHD, the official diagnostic criteria does not touch on um, emotions at all. Um, and that's another way of our human brain, how it makes sense of things, gives us information. And so the, the emotional regulation difficulties as uh, present in ADHD, it's not necessarily the coexisting mood or anxiety issues that can also ride along with ADHD. It's generally managing the same emotionally frustrating things that everybody encounters day to day. Um, stuck in traffic, um, the oil change has turned into you need a new transmission that might be worth what your, I don't know, 1995 car is worth right now, and you have to decide whether to get a new car or do that. Most people without ADHD, th that'll be stressful too, but they're, we're able to compartmentalize it where we go, okay, but I have to focus on work. I'll worry about this when I get home and talk it over with my partner, or I'm still going to go to class because I don't want to miss class and then have to get the notes. This is a silly example, but individuals with ADHD might be more prone to say, I have to figure this out right now. I can't wait because I'll be vibrating all day thinking about this, or I won't be able to focus. Um, and you know, it is, just, it, like I said, it's stressful for anybody, but being able to, in that case, downregulate a bit, self-soothing, whatever we want to call it, and it can take a little bit. Um, but the emotional regulation also ties in with things like where we need to upregulate, increase our feelings, and that is a core feature of procrastination. Um, because part of procrastination is not feeling like doing the thing. Your logical brain saying, I know it's better if I break this down and start earlier, but the emotional sides, but the other part of the brain might be going, yeah, you don't have to do this now. And that's also part of the emotional side. It's like that, what we call the UG feeling. It's like, oh, I don't want to do this. And that can, all it takes is that little bit to knock us off task. And then we also have later on the emotions of frustration and beating ourselves up for, oh my gosh, well, how did I do this again? So that's, <laughs> I won't say a brief nutshell, but in a nutshell, you know, what the, the cognitive behavioral therapy, sort of how it addresses medications can be crucially helpful and very often can complement the work in CBT. Uh, but some things, even if somebody's focusing better, it won't magically make you want to do homework or taxes. So there still might be some habits there that can do well, in addition to the emotional regulation skills and also the negative thoughts or self-talk that can come from growing up with and living with often unrecognized ADHD till later on. And it's why another of the popular books on early books on adult ADHD, I think pretty much the same year as Driven Distraction, the title was, you mean I'm not stupid, lazy, or crazy? Because I think that was often the, the, the attributions that people with undiagnosed ADHD had. I must be stupid. Well, how do I keep doing this? I must be lazy. I wait till the last minute. No, it was the executive functioning problems that weren't acknowledged. And it's really hard for everybody else to see it. And that's why some of those attributions, they weren't necessarily self-generated. These are the things that we hear where you're not fulfilling your potential. You need to start earlier. Boy, you seem like you know what you're talking about in class, but your work doesn't support this. Or maybe or try harder is a great one. Try hard. Try harder. And it makes sense. Sometimes I was asked this somewhere else and it's like, why do you think? Um, there's, I think, better insight about depression or anxiety these days. But with ADHD, um, the, 
the fancy phrase, if you want to uh, impress your friends, is um, ADHD is a quantitative difference, not a qualitative difference. And that's a fancy way of saying it's a matter of degree. Everybody had, if not, if case is not clear, we all have the executive functions. And with procrastination in general, emotional regulation for everybody, that UG feeling is something everybody deals with. So I think for most people, and that's why there's that myth out there, well, everybody has a little ADHD, don't they? Um, well, we all have executive functions. So we all probably have that familiar experience of, I don't feel like doing this. I waited to, I waited longer than I planned to. Maybe there's a little bit of a rush, but most people without ADHD can rein it in before it gets out of hand. And there's other people at the far end of the curve who these are the people you want to be your administrative assistant, your, your travel agent who get you the tickets well in advance of things. Um, but with individuals with ADHD, the, there's uh, the severity and magnitude of the difficulties is much greater, but also the executive functions, we all have them. So if, if you have insomnia, your executive functioning goes down. If you have the flu, your executive functioning will go down, but generally as you get treatment for insomnia, you get over the flu, your executive functioning will go back to a reliable baseline. But with ADHD, the baseline's a moving target. Um, it's the consistent inconsistency is the phrase I and probably others use for it, which can be maddening because some days you're a rock star, other days it's a dumpster fire. And it's sort of like, I can't trust myself. I know I can do it, but I don't know if I will do it when I have to do it. With a lot of the adults that come to you with ADHD, whether they were diagnosed later or they kind of knew they had it all along and just didn't grow out of it. I mean, when you mentioned either kind of like this growing out of ADHD, is that this like connection or something that happens where everything just snaps into place and it just feels like you're normal again? Because I'm 25 years old. And I know they say that it's the end of uh, 29 or something, maybe early 30s that would just be to. Yeah, when the brain develops, I'm like, damn, I hope I'm not that one in the three or whoever gets the well, key. You know the growing out of it is more of an all or nothing categorization because in the, the first time, um, it wasn't called ADHD yet. It was, uh, oh, I'm going to get it wrong. And I should know this. It was like a 22 word definition in the second edition of the diagnostic, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It was like hyperkinetic reaction of childhood. So it was pretty much hyperactivity in childhood. And even in there, it said, yeah, this presents in uh, children, adolescents, but generally resolves in adulthood. So early on, it was viewed as, yeah, you'll grow out of it. It'll be this easing in, you know, some people mature sooner, other people it takes, like in terms of these, this self-control, it eventually, everybody catches up and we're all on the same page by, let's just say 18 or 19. But really what happened, the, the symptoms and demands morph a little bit. So the the overt hyperactivity in childhood, you know, somebody, you know, a kid wiggling in their chair, getting up when they shouldn't, you know, jumping the line and hitting the pinata at the birthday party, that stuff, you really don't see that too much in adults, but it gets masked to use the, the, the term that you correctly used, or there are greater controls where somebody might be able to sit through the meeting or sit on the plane, um, but inside they're going oh my gosh when i can't they're they're um shivering is not the right word but they're feeling it inside but nobody sees it so okay they look calm and their your brain could be 10 miles away oh thinking about something else even though you're looking at the uh the speaker so it was the there's a de developmental shift in many of the symptoms the inattentive generally are pretty persistent and actually probably cause more problems in adulthood because there's increased demands for 
um, focus, organization, time management with fewer supports. And often we have greater responsibilities for other people too, in terms of being a parent, a coworker, things like that. So I would that, think that with a, with adults with ADHD that they have less physical attributes showing and more cognitive or mental aspects that they'd want help with. Stuff that would be being an adult, you know, paying bills and making sure that's all on time. That's very big issues. Um, but this is where the emotions come in with the with the even though it's not hyperactivity, but hyperactivity and impulsivity they do overlap a little bit because impulsivity. What is it? Is a strong emotion to part of it is the strong impulse or emotion to do something well do something period um or uh, something other than what we sh we plan to do that might be more enjoyable so that's almost like an override of okay this thing i want to do now um versus the thing that i i plan to do now because the payoff will be later but i'm going to go and this is a phrase used in the research on it the smaller sooner payoff rather than the larger later, which requires some of that up, reg up regulation. How will I feel later today having made some progress on this project as opposed to the thing right now? So this is like the thoughts, feelings, uh, actions, and the executive function. They're like this braided cord, this nested thing that goes together. And part of the work is teasing it apart. So that way we can make a, a fairer part. How do your emotions override you? How does your thinking, including including planning about a task and how you think about what you're doing? Yeah, logically, I know it's good for me to start earlier, but part of me really doesn't want to do it because it's hard. And let's just say it's like a writing assignment there. And this is part of the cognitive behavioral therapy. Where do these thoughts and beliefs and, and emotions come from? When I had essays in school, it took me twice as long for half as much as any of my peers, and still I'd fail and have to rewrite it. So there I'm getting another two hours of writing. And so there's the, almost like this – I've used the analogy of food poisoning. You're given a food which is toxic or tainted, and your body – you're nauseated, and your body expels the food. Very pleasant imagery for this um, podcast. Um, but the next time you're presented with the food – your logical brain might go, okay, that was an exception, but the emotions are reading the situation and other parts of your brain and going, you know, having the, the emotional and physical associations with, you know, starting to feel nauseated. And sometimes people take a while to eat the food that made them sick. And we think about like going through school with ADHD, particularly if it was undiagnosed, a lot of things like reading and writing and arithmetic and all these things, maybe social world of saying the wrong thing and, and facing some rejection and the emotions that go along with that. Um, so the emotions really are part of a lot of things and part of how we make sense of and learn from the past. And it's adaptive, like the the food poisoning is adaptive because what is it? Fool me once, shame, uh, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. It's how we figure out our environment, but also a lot of the things with ADHD. It's a lot of things that people want to do for themselves but it might be tainted by some of these past experiences but that's the emotional that informs our automatic thoughts how do we assess and do i want to do this or not um there's a lot that goes into that and that's part of the cbt but it's part of, also part of the experience of adults with adhd and they go why do i keep doing it this way um i know i should do this but i end up doing this more often than not and that goes back to that line that title of the book you mean i'm not stupid lazy or crazy because that's like once getting an accurate diagnosis and good treatment, um, the treatments we have for ADHD are among the most successful we have in clinical psychology and psychiatry.
Do you ever have any adults with ADHD that come in with more than just what ADHD symptoms would be like some type of what would seem like trauma from like, there's a large amount of shame that comes with ADHD. So there's also shame, anxiety, and things that roll with that. Now that is not just a subtype of ADHD or what ADHD can have. It's a many, everyone has a little bit of anxiety, I'm sure, and some a little bit of depression, but it can be amplified with those. And I would have to think with a person's experience, whether they were shamed as a kid about ADHD or however they grew up that they might've experienced some trauma. It's going to affect them in adulthood. And I've come across like the large amount of numbers with adults with either major depression that have ADHD or something of that sort, which brings an area of concern because, you know, I get depressed too. I'm not going to hide it. And it's not easy to deal with that, but there's this spiraling kind of downside where it feels like, I think if I looked it up, it was something about spiraling down into a volcano or something like that, that ADHD people experience, like it's never going to end. And I go, man, as an adult, you just want to make sure that experience is being able to be managed as well too. So I'm curious if you experience more with adults and it's certain symptoms that are outside the ADHD criteria. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, t- the top three coexisting diagnoses, if you will, but these could also be in subthreshold form. Anxiety and depression are generally neck and neck in terms of number one and two. And I think anxiety generally nudges out more often than not a little bit ahead, but you know that's more academic. And then the third is like substance use. Um, and, and it could be many things. It could be attempts at self-medication, uh, you know, caffeine use, nicotine use, um, you know, smoking pot to fall asleep. It, it could be more like, you know, addiction or dependence that becomes its own issue. Uh, and so again, all these things can uh, coexist and trauma fits in there. A by the book definition of trauma is usually, well, not usually, um, is either you facing or witnessing somebody else face um, some sort of threat to your bodily well-being, uh, your life. And this could be like a bad car accident, an airplane accident. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, an assault, a rape, uh, being mugged at gunpoint, getting shot, you know, things like that, soldiers in war, um, that has expanded um, because I'm not going to tell somebody that, you know, getting bullied, you know, and bullying could probably fit in there too, because even though we might go, yeah, you know, the, the gang around you probably wasn't trying to kill you, but you don't always know that or what's going to happen. So, these things and and a wider array of things clinically, and we could argue whether it fulfills diagnostic criteria. But you know, clinically, these sorts of traumas, yeah, these get imprinted. And this this is why you know, going back to the emotions, the emotions are an adaptive system, including and especially. I don't want to call them negative because they do play a role, but the unpleasant feelings, because traumas help us to avoid those things, be on guard for them in the extreme, you know, the extremes uh, to the examples I gave. Anxiety, if we want to run this down, anxiety is generally viewed and is still apropos the assessment of risk or threat. But now, and I think this is particularly relevant and there's some emerging data on this, um, the role of the intolerance of uncertainty because the thing about risk is I know it probably won't happen, but it might. It's non-zero risk. So there's always uncertainty. Or we think we're, our performance review is going to go well, um, but we're not 100% sure. Now, we can all have those. But with ADHD, this can go back to, yeah, I thought my first evaluation was going to be better than it was. And I thought plenty of times in school I got an A on the test and I got Ds. So that can start fueling some of this uncertainty belief. And I made the case that 
ADHD is an uncertainty generator or an entropy generator in a way. I know I can do it. I know I can do it well. I can look back on factual history of how I did it well, but there's enough uncertainty times I thought I did well that I didn't. Times I walked into the meeting and was told, okay, we're ready for your presentation. And it's like, I totally forgot until that moment. Plenty of these other factors. Now, depression then is um, the assessment of loss, which can be true. It could be, you know, now this would be more grief, but the loss of a loved one, the loss of a pet, but it can also be the loss of esteem, the loss of reputation, the loss of opportunities, exactly. Um, missing a job interview or something like that, or, or, you know, missing an application because I've worked with people who go, oh, I missed the application of this school. Now I have to wait another semester. Now it's not catastrophic. It's not that your life is over, but you know, that that's the thing about ADHD. Most people's intentions, what they want, they're pretty humble because that's another one of the myths about ADHD. Oh, these are people looking for making excuses and easy way out. Just the pat on the back would be nice. That's it. Well, but that pat on the back. Yeah. And, and that in, 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 in most workplaces in school, that goes a long way. But it, but it's also um, with these things, most people are just going, I just want to know if I put in all these hours studying. Yeah, I'll study more than everybody else. I just want to know I'm going to pass. Um, or, you know, I, yeah, I can't think of a better example than that. But it's the, the working twice as hard for half as much. So most people, they just want to say, I, I want to be able to get work done while I'm at work and have more time on my weekend or to spend with my children. Um, it's these are the ripple effects of ADHD. So, you know, the the anxiety and the uncertainty, the uh, depressed mood and the sense of loss. And I mentioned how, you know, the substance use could be, you know, just, you know, um, there can be a predisposition with ADHD, whether it's impulse control issues or whatnot, um, or at least unmedicated. Um, there's some recent studies showing both um, studies. I mean, just one of them was just out, but tracking adolescence through high school into like early young adulthood. Um, then the other one I think was a cross-sectional study when um, with ADHD treated with stimulants, and I'm a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, but I'm just drawing on the data, um, tracked over time, being able to track the ongoing use, um, there's no greater risk for addiction than um, in the general population. So that that difference you know, disappears, but it would seem like ADHD is a risk factor for be it impulse control, attempts at self-medication. Um, you know, just, you know, sometimes maybe like with marijuana, what I've heard some people say is it, it just makes me feel less stressed, right? It helps me get to sleep or it just I helps the me opposite uh, slow, slow down the thoughts. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, I'm not recommending that because the, the, the research that at least that my most recent review of it really doesn't support the use of marijuana for um, ADHD, but um, I'm just uh, talking about what some people describe they get out of it. But yeah, that's that's the other thing, the opposite. You ever have people who are unmedicated with ADHD that are in adulthood that have, I guess, I mean, they have hope or anything like that when it comes to treatment, not in the sense of using pills or anything like that, but being able to work on their, like, I feel like, I mean, it's a part of me. I've never used medication. I'm 25 years old. I don't see the point in adding it now, even if it helps. I mean, I'm sure I might try it. Sure. But I feel like now I'm just trying to figure out how do I work with the thing that I have had my whole life to turn it into something that's more of a positive? Because there's a lot of positives to ADHD, but it's about trying to make those what people would call superpowers, which I don't really consider them superpowers because you have to catch them in the right moments. But you can use them as a great advantage and a really great strength. I mean, I have a giant sense of empathy that a lot of people seem to be lacking 
lacking. And I don't have kids, but my heart goes out. So that's why I get interested in politics so much. Not because it's fun. It's just because I see a lot of things. I'm like, why can't we do this? And why can't we do that? It's the impulsivity. It's, the it's driving that action, that action yeah. orientation. Absolutely. Um, no, I, I, I think, yes, there, there can be a lot of hopefulness because one, I think, be it a psychiatrist, a psychologist, um, a social worker, a, an ADHD coach, somebody who has a background in this, yeah, sitting across from somebody who gets it. Now, it doesn't mean, okay, don't worry about anything. Don't worry about handing things in. Just, you know, just get extensions on your taxes all the time. You know, line that's out there is, uh, you know, and it's, it's like one of these general pieces of advice, if you will. ADHD is not your fault, but it is your responsibility to some degree, to a large degree, but um, there can be things that can be easily accommodated in surroundings or in relationships. Um, but being able to sit across from somebody who gets it and can also help you strike that balance between, okay, acceptance and, okay, when you get off track, rather than beating yourself up and saying, this is no good, this isn't working, how do you ease yourself back on task and finish strong and then move to the next thing, stay on track? Um, it can also be things like, um, you know, focusing on making some changes, instituting some coping skills. Um, like I said, there's no trade secrets, but it can also be those things that, oh, planners don't work for me. And sometimes when I reverse engineer that with somebody and looking back on, well, how do they not work for you? Well, I use them for a while, but then I stop using them. Um, I don't check them or I lose them. Now, those are three things that will interfere with, you know, time management and planner use. Um, but those are each three problems that can be addressed, such as the checking, the consistent use over time, and keeping track of them. Um, those, but th that's that can be sort of um, where people can fall into. Well, I'll use a clumsy term, but a failure schema. Okay, if it stops working a little bit, that means it's gonna. I can't use it at all, and that can come from and it, it's in some ways makes sense from ADHD. It's, it goes back to that food poisoning. I don't want to put me myself through the, the frustration or that awful sense, the shame and guilt I get from it um, again, but working with somebody who can sort of normalize that, take a look at and break down the patterns and personalize it to the individual because maybe the planners that they used aren't the best fit. Maybe they do better with a digital or a whiteboard or you know something else, trying to find what works for that person. Um, and I think that's a, another part. And like you said, with all the strengths, um, looking for what are the different roles and opportunities you have for you know, both coping, but, but also the self-care. You mentioned how you're very diligent about your exercise, and that's another great um, way to manage the effects of ADHD. And then build on, okay, what do you do right after your workout? Is that a good time for you to do work or do you need a little downtime before you pick up work? And even the sequencing of tasks, which is an executive function. The fancy phrase for a very common grandmother rule of breaking down large tasks is called event segmentation and sequence and um, behavioral sequencing. So this is just a very fancy way to say um, breaking down the task into manageable steps, which everybody does but somebody without ADHD can probably chunk together a bunch of steps and say, okay, time to start on my homework. Somebody else may have to go, okay, homework is like three or four assignments. I have to break that down to the first one because if I start with four, I'm going to start going in four different directions. My engine's going to be idling high, 
but before I'm able to take action on anything, um, and this can be a high cognitive load task, like trying to figure it out or winging it, which draws down our mental battery metaphorically. And then all of a sudden we start feeling tired and then we go, okay, I need to take a break. I'll do it later when I'm in the mood for it, as opposed to, okay, if I can take one thing at a time or plan it in advance, the pre-commitment that helps you know, reduce that energy draw by you know, being able to say, okay, at 10 o'clock, I'm going to do this for 30 minutes and pace yourself, you know, over the day. Sometimes the setting as well too, like if I have a paper I have to write, or if I have to do emails or something like that, I'll usually go to like a library and it's like, I have Wi-Fi at my house, but I just need to, that setting, the sitting in a bar stool or whatever the chairs they have pulled up at the library to sit in. It's like, I need something like that with a computer in front of me and nothing else around me. Cause if I'm sitting in my room, I'll immediately turn on Netflix. Next thing I know, I'm not watching or doing the emails. I'm just watching Netflix and then I'll be on to something else and then something else. Even sitting outside can help, um, which I think is overall positive. If you look at like what the benefits it can do for some of those things we mentioned, like depression, anxiety and stuff that comes with ADHD, especially with burnout. I mean, just it would seem counterintuitive because you're just sitting out there and you're just kind of relaxing and then having everything, you know, just hear the wind, whatever you want to say. But for people with ADHD, it might sound like that would be unbearable, but it's actually pretty easy for me, at least. I mean, I'm sure there's out there for other people with ADHD. Nature seems to be a good cure for things, but slowing down, like realizing that we're not have to take everything minute by minute. I think the reason that we don't pay attention to time as much is because of the fact that we're moving constantly. Like you could tell me an hour from now, we'll have a chat and I'm like, that doesn't exist right now. We're just going to be, we're here today. So I'm talking to you now, but there's this whole thing that I feel like a lot of adults are going to be experiencing that would have ADHD. And I am worried about the kids. I am. I think it's really important. There's, I'm glad there's a lot of research out there for them to be able to be on their phone at like if they're 12 or something like that and be able to find an article that they might experience or have a question about. That's really important. But also with the adults, it's kind of like that's a little bit more, it would seem of a not impressionable time, but a more important time as well too, because of the fact that they already have so many compounding problems on their head already that I would feel like it would just lead to an over excess of certain things like the addiction property stuff. And then also depression. I mean, suicide rates are higher than they probably, oh, definitely higher than they should be. But I just, I consider all these factors where now I'm starting to get interested more in the adult side, not because I'm an adult, but because other adults that really haven't been acknowledging it or been pushing it down, thinking this is how they have to keep living their life is a little bit, you know, of an important issue. Yeah, no, I agree with everything you said. Like getting, we we talk about get to a worker study station. It seems like, like you said, isn't it easier if I work at my desk at home? But I know, um, hey, I'll, I'll give him a shout out. Broad Street Grind in Southerton, Pennsylvania. That's my, every Saturday morning, if I have a writing task, I'm there at 7 a.m. But you know what? Because I, I think it draws on a lot of things. And these are general principles that would work for everybody. Um, but with ADHD, it's almost uh, more essential because of the sensitivity, like you mentioned, to the environment. Um, and yeah, getting to the place where we're going to do the work. Well, the very fact that we're moving there, one, we're taking action on the task. Now we could turn around and I could go to the coffee shop, get my coffee and leave and not do any work. I've had one person we talked about, can you just get your car to the gym right after work? Because if you go home, you know, you won't go back out. One person said, I got there, turned off the edge and sat there for 30 seconds, started it and left. But everybody else, usually not 100%, but getting to the place, you know, things he said, and this is very individual because some per one person might say, yeah, the library is too quiet. Um, okay, do the coffee shop. Somebody else says the coffee shop is too loud or whatever. So it is those sensitivities 
Um, yeah, getting outside, there's some research on that as, and we, humans are hardwired to find that appealing. And it does give, I know there's the the thing about brown noise um, not long ago, and that would help people focus. But for some people listening to, as they're doing work, um, instrumental music or music where they know the lyrics inside and out, so they don't really hear them. Um, and being outside for one person, it really chills them out. Somebody else, it would be distracting because then they're looking at clouds and seeing what they are shaped like. So it's 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 another one of these lines out there in the, the ADHD universe. If you've met one person with ADHD, well, then you've met one person with ADHD, as opposed to if you've seen one, you've seen them all. Um, because even within what we're describing with the executive functions and even the symptoms, like you can have somebody who's predominantly inattentive, who says, no, I sat still, um, not a behavior problem in school. Um, everybody thought I had laser focused attention, but I was staring at the board, but my mind was in, you know, I don't know, the Shire and Lord of the Rings or something like that. Um, or, you know, I, I, I can look at a book or um, I, you know, I lose track of time um, and, and missing things or, you know, whatever it is. So that might be different than somebody who says, um, no, I get the places on time, but I get distracted and um, I'm, I overspend. My impulsivity is I overspend, impulsive spending, or I say the wrong thing. I don't know what that is, if it's a dopamine rush that they get from that. Or I something. think so. Well, it's the smaller sooner rather than the larger later. Do I want to get it now? And now it's coming and get the update from Amazon or whatever. And it's like these little boosts um, as opposed to, am I really going to read the book right away? And you know, maybe I can get a digital copy from the library and see if I want it. Or But that that takes time. And that's part of the, you know, the impulsivity in adulthood. I think that is underappreciated for its persistence because I think it really overlaps with the emotionality. I got to do this now. I can't wait. Or, you know, what's the thing? Um, ready, fire, aim. Um, say the thing and then later on go, oh, you shouldn't have said it to that person because they know somebody or they have a family member who uh, and you can't unring the bell type of thing. And though that's the grown up impulsivity. Uh, so I think that's another thing that is more prominent because, again, uh, like you said, a, a, adults, we have more on our plate. There's no end of the school year in adulthood where we start over with a clean slate. And, OK, even if you, you failed the class, you start over. Uh, you, know, you start over fresh and it's cumulative. It usually gets more complex. Um, it can be good stuff and not that um, people with ADHD can't, I mean, you know, there's many people with ADHD who are doing wonderful things, but even with that, there's a struggle behind the scenes, the, the time and effort it takes and things, a lot of things that can be worked. Even if somebody goes, hey, the output is great, but you know, just like with kids, and this isn't a bad thing, um, doing evaluations, asking adults, well, how were you with homework in school? Oh, I always got it done in time, but both of my parents were sitting with me three hours every night, and you know they had to wake up early for work. And by the end, they the last like three problems, they did them just because they had to get to bed. So it's a loving family trying to, and and also, it, it took a team to manage at least homework. Um, you know, for that that young that youngster with ADHD. So, um. You know the challenges are different over time, um, and like I said, like and like you said, with ADHD, there's usually um, 
the individual regulation, but using that self-regulation to manage, including pet ownership or, you know, keeping track of our car, keeping up with registrations, all the administrative stuff that we go through too. I feel like with a pet and ADHD, it's a lot easier to pay attention than it is your car because this thing's constantly in your view all the time. So well, that's true. That's true. Focused yeah. on it. But um, with ADHD and workload, I mean, their output, do you think that people with ADHD have a lot of output that they crank out a lot of things or because I feel like sometimes I get more input than I do output. I feel like I'm not doing enough. But then from the outside, from another person's perspective, like you actually do a lot. And I'm like, I don't think it, that at all. All right. I'll do the therapist cop out. It depends um, because I, I there can be what I hear a lot is the quality of my work is good, if not excellent. But it is often late um, or, you know, some other variable in there that somehow, for lack of a better phrase, taints the quality or overrides the quality. Um, or sometimes I've heard that my quality is good enough that I get a pass on these things, but I don't know if you know, I get a new boss or somebody else or if I change jobs or have a different role. Um, if, if that will change, uh, I mean, another place where this comes up is, uh, be it being in a committed living relationship and this could be roommates, but it could also be like a committed romantic partner, especially co-parents where there's some performance expectations of actual output or whether it's, you know, output, but output could be taking care of chores and things. And this is where, yeah, we can say it's little stuff like, you know, missing the recycling pickup or something like that. but it's usually not just that. That's usually like the the part of the iceberg showing us usually other stuff like, you know, um, the spending or other things. So going back to, you know, sometimes that is an assessment where somebody thinks about their own output and it may be very good, but they say it could be more if I could get started earlier or I could take on more. Um, and, or it could be that, you know, it could be self-protective that they're always on themselves to say, okay, even though it's good enough, I can't um, rest on my laurels. I have to beat myself up and stay on, and I'm not saying that's the best way to do it, but it's part of, um, if I'm not hard on myself, I don't do it. Um, but other times it can be a lot of stuff um, and people underestimate, but is it the stuff that stakeholders want? Or, or there's a lot of stuff, like somebody who's creative, but maybe there's some aspect of, oh, if I want to sell this, I have to get a publisher or I have to post it online. And that's what I procrastinate on. So usually there's something in the pipeline somewhere, even if the work is good, at least for somebody seeking help, where there might be a breakdown in, in terms of, I'll use the phrase, which is also used earlier on that, you know, sometimes helps identify ADHD, help fulfill the potential or at least fulfill their intentions for this endeavor. Like they might do good creative work, but they say, I also want to sell this on Etsy or something like that. And then it's maybe following through on the more boring part, posting it, writing up the description, you know, whatever goes into that. I'm not on that. So when it comes to when you first started researching into this, I mean, the bare minimum research that was out there on ADHD when you started compared to what it is now, where there's a lot of information out there on ADHD. What about them fitting into a neurodivergent world? I mean, with all the information that we got out there now about ADHD, I would think that would raise awareness as much as me and you speaking about it and other people that are speaking about it. So then eventually people would just learn that this person works like this. Like, it's not that crazy to say. Saying it out loud, it does not sound nuts at all. But surprisingly, 
people don't do it. I mean, I guess maybe because it's sacrificing time or you're putting more effort into another individual, that could be a problem. But if someone tells me they have something, I'm going to research what it is and figure out how I can best equip myself to deal with that person or help that person out so we can get the task done. That's not a stupid or dumb thing to do. And more people could do that. But I've noticed that a lot of certain situations, like I have a friend who has ADHD, but they do something that I wouldn't think you could do, which is sit down at a computer the whole time and just constantly type like accounting stuff, like good with numbers, like go ahead. But I would feel like you'd want to get, cause he has the hyperactivity. So why aren't you moving around? And I feel like that just wasn't a good position for you, but it was a safe career for him. So I go, okay, well we got to find, and that's kind of two questions there, but the aspect of neurodivergent kind of world that's set up in place, if you think that'll change and eventually people will just get on board with the whole that everyone works in individual different ways. And ADHD is a good example of that. And then also picking a certain career path. I mean, would it be, I guess, best for someone with ADHD to rethink some of the strategies that they made in life to maybe go down a different path, even though that might be the safe one, like being a doctor and all that used to be the safe careers, but I'm not saying that they're not. I'm just saying, I think it's a little bit different now. Like there's a bunch of things that I think in 20 years ago, you would have never even considered to be a job that are now jobs. Right. Right. I will take the second one first. I think, um, you know, people will ask, you know, like, what are the good jobs for ADHD? And, you know, it depends because like like one person, if they really love numbers and if that like because part of part of the restlessness and hyperactivity is also like quick thinking um, and having a lot of thoughts and being able to have a, a, a lot of things, which can be a nuisance at times. But also it's something that people can employ well. So if somebody says, hey, I really enjoy numbers. So being on the computer, doing that as an accountant or as a programmer or something like that, they go, I find this intellectually interesting. So it keeps my brain going. That's fine. Somebody else could say, I find that numbing and deadening and I could never do it. Um, so that is, if if people are having difficulties in the workplace, that is sometimes part of the discussion. Is this a good fit for you? Now, you always have to be sensitive to that because sometimes something might be a bad fit, but you go, hey, rent comes due every month and this is paying the rent right now. So there's that reality. And it can be at both and. How do we maintain where you're at? See if there are ways you can fashion adjustments or accommodations. Okay. Now, I think it's agreed upon the open office space was a colossal failure because even people without ADHD, like working in the open, having access to be and being being able to access everybody – um, it was viewed as great from creativity, but everybody needs time, like even with that creative brainstorming, to isolate ourselves and collect our thoughts and integrate it and synthesize it. And if we're around other people all the time, that can be distracting or, or things like that. So, but bringing it back to, you know, somebody who goes, hey, can you ask permission to go into a closed, unused conference room if you need to quiet all the, the office noise? Sometimes the accommodations and the adjustments can be relatively simple and really don't cost anything. Um, other times it may be a larger discussion of, okay, do you want to start looking for something else that may be a better fit? And I think this is where for some people, um, hybrid work or being able to work from home has been a godsend that that works for them. But for other people, they say, no, I actually did well going to the office where there were other people there because that was like, one, it got me out of my place. And then I had all these prompts for doing work and okay, I guess I should sit down and, and it got me started and also a hard stop at the day. And then when I came home, I could relax. So I think, um, yeah, considering goodness of fit, 
and you know area of interest and and also workarounds for any aspect of a job that we don't like doing um moving ahead i think and this ties in with that and the neurodivergent world i think there's you know especially with the pandemic where i think the being forced into lockdown and working from home and everybody mostly everybody losing the structure that we rely on because there is something about structured in our day about getting up going to school going to work and then coming home which gives us these movement points that at least gets us waking up in the morning where all of a sudden working at home where maybe other family members are doing school at home or whatever the case may be um all of a sudden it was more scattered or maybe more distraction or wearing down the wi-fi whatever um and people saw how the lack of structure now some people were able to adapt quite well but maybe people who long wondered whether they had they had adhd or other things going on maybe mood or anxiety issues as well now all of a sudden it's like i got to get help for this now and plus there was that period of increased access because with virtual care and a lot of and this is like sort of this socio-historical um you know point where and all of a sudden um, licensing restrictions, at least for me with uh, being a psychologist and being able to practice across state lines virtually. And so all of a sudden now people who may not have had any um, ADHD specialist in their immediate area that they could drive to now could access them. Maybe in a, it didn't even have to be a neighboring state. They could reach out and maybe get help for the first time, get a diagnosis. So I think there's more awareness now. And I think what you described, many people, I think, are accommodating, be it teachers or people in an office or in personal lives, where even if you don't know somebody has ADHD or whatnot, but you know, okay, um, if we if we have a, a, an agreement to get together for lunch, I'm going to text my friend the morning of because I know sometimes they forget. And it's not done in this snarky way it's just hey do you mind if i do this i just know sometimes you're busy or you get distracted or whatever and you, you find a way to work within certain networks and maybe even in the workplace like i mentioned some simple accommodations or people asking for um hey supervisors okay if we meet 15 minutes every friday i want to update you on the project because again if you're not if i don't see you i know the project's there but it's not going to be there right in front of my eyes because it's not due till the end of October or something like that. But if I have that meeting every week, that gives me sort of like a, a reference point, the other end of the swimming pool to say, oh, I've got to reach that. So let me be ready. And I think building on that for where it's not as automatic, maybe in various systems, I I think there are some still some mis misunderstandings about ADHD or or ways it's taken the wrong way. So maybe talking over somebody else because there's such an um, excitement about an idea, how that could be viewed as rude, but it could also be viewed. And sometimes there's a culture of a brainstorming session, or I've seen this in meetings I've been in, where it's an excitement of ideas and people pull back and say, sorry, but it's understood that this is what we're doing, or this is how we work. And if somebody really needs to say, can you hold that thought? I really need to get this whole idea out. And there's a, a choreography there that's understood. I think that can be fostered. And it is sort of explicitly talking about the norms that we have for these things where one other person could say, you interrupted me. You, you must disrespect me. And this is some of the attributions that can be held by others about what we can understand as 
ADHD-related issues. This can come up in the workplace, but also in committed relationships and families where, um, yeah, I've heard things where, you know, um, somebody with ADHD, their, their, their partner seeing a therapist and the therapist says, well, if your partner really cared about you, they would remember your supervisor's name at work when you're sharing stories from work. And it's like, how do we set that bar? I get it. It's really nice if somebody goes, oh, you remembered, uh, you remembered. But the opposite isn't necessarily true that, you know, this doesn't exactly fit that there, but absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. Um, well, there's a lot of information that they're trying to process sometimes when a conversation is going on. When someone's talking, I'm not just looking at the or listening to the words coming out. I'm listening. I mean, I'm looking at the wall. I'm looking at a, a infinity different things, but also trying to soak up the information. Usually you snap in when there's like an alert like, hey, can you zone in here for a second so we can talk about this? It's about kind of finding these like even with some tasks like a preparedness for instance i know a lot of people are forgetful with adhd um but setting it up you know if i'm getting home and i go i have to get my clothes ready for tomorrow i don't want to do it later because then i'll forget about it then i'll be rushing and i probably won't have anything tomorrow i'd have to trick myself into being like you know what that feeling is like when you don't have your stuff for tomorrow so you might as well do it now I'm like that's a good point and then you just kind of start setting everything up yeah ab no and this is where like it, it, i've seen it in couples like when and that that's part of the couples therapy where at least one partner has adhd is and it's part of the cognitive behavioral therapy is changing the cognitions oh they don't care as opposed to they're listening um so even if they does it really matter if they don't remember the supervisor's name somebody else a friend of theirs may but it it's being able to see the flowers uh through the weeds or instead of the weeds or whatever we want to call it um but and and i think this is what we're ta talking about in classrooms or workplaces um having this wider range view understanding and i think it can be talked about explicitly of and and sometimes people i've heard this with adhd but it could be you know, other things for lack of a better phrase but maybe being more direct because, okay, I want to use the fewest number of words so I can hold on to what I'm saying. So if I don't sort of throw down feathers and say, hey, I know you're working really hard on this stuff and I, you know, this, that, or the other thing, uh, but, uh, you know, it would really be helpful. We really need this by Friday. Um, it might be a more direct, um, hey, uh, you know, it's Friday. We need this by five o'clock. I'm worried that you won't give it to us. Saying the same thing, but maybe not candy coated as much. But having this understanding, and maybe later on, and this can be a both end, the person with ADHD comes back later and says, you know, I'm, I'm really direct when we have to have these planning meetings, but I know you're working hard. And that there are ways to get to the same place. I'm a big believer in equifinality. There's different pathways to get to the same or similar outcomes. So, you know, that's what we're talking about. It's almost like the name of the game with ADHD and, and also with these relationships. Um, and having that understanding where, okay, yeah, with one friend, it could be they remember the name of your supervisor, but this one, you have to remind the person every time, or you don't worry about it. You just say your supervisor um, and you focus on the story. So I, I think there's a lot of ways we're moving in that direction, but I think especially in workplaces and maybe some workplaces where maybe there's an ethic of, I don't know, you, you don't bring up things in the meetings or you wait to be called on or whatever the case may be. Now, I understand if everybody's yelling out at once in a classroom or something, but well, it's not wall street. We're not just yelling across the. Yeah, exactly. Section. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but it's, um, you know, I think there are ways to, uh, you know what? And 
you know, there may be one student who they shout out the answer and shoot up their hand. The other one raises their hand and they maybe they can both coexist and realize it's, hey, the one who raises their hand and waits, you're not being punished by or dismissed by the person who might call out the answer first. Um, you know, you're going to have, uh, you know, making sure they have an opportunity too. So it's not because I think that's, and you know what, with the executive functions, um, Russ Barkley had a lovely book on this about probably about 10 years ago, um, how they developed or why, why do humans have them to the degree that we do? Part of the thinking was it came from the selection pressures, the evolutionary pressures of living in larger and larger groups of non-genetically related humans. Parents will give their lives for their children. And if you extend out, the extended family will help out, but less so. But now with genetic strangers in a community, where in those days, maybe 100 people or so, getting kicked out of the group would be a death sentence. So being able to work and play well with others was essential. The interdependence and working together for longer range goals and frustration tolerance, like I'll help you build your house, you help me build mine, or uh, hunting and sharing the sharing the kill and things like that. Now there's, you know, this is now what's, yeah, we don't have the same pressures, but it's keeping up with stuff, keeping up with work and things like that. But I think there is still that sometimes judgment that that accounting that happens uh, where, oh, it's not fair when, in fact, I think we have new definitions of how we can operate with each other. I mean, it's still drawing on some similar ideas, um, but um, ways we can be more accommodating and realize it's not a zero-sum game. Okay, if I give you this, I'm losing something. It's non-zero. Hey, you get something out of it, but I do as well, um, the working together. So hopefully that'll be um, a mindset that we can have moving forward. Do you as... have a lot of people with um, relationship problems um, with ADHD? I can see where it can be a problem. I mean, I've seen a mixed bag of uh, results on that one when it comes to some people say that they're the funnest in relationships. And some people say that it feels like it's dealing with like a second child, which I can understand 100%. But I would just think that, I mean, it would probably be better in the beginning, but as you start to actually form a longer relationship and connection, there's so many issues that start arising, like trying to keep someone with ADHD interested because just a sudden thing could snap us right out of it. And there's a lot of stuff that can be taken, like you were saying, kind of rude, but it's not meant to be rude. You know, sometimes I use my impulsivity just because I don't want the joke to escape it. There's something funny and there's plenty of times I could have inserted something, but I'm just like, ah, hold on. We got to sit back a little bit, but there is these complications with executive functions. I guess that would be executive functions, but they arise in relationships. And I think it's better if your partner understands what you're going through. And I think that, you know, some people go the extra mile to look into some of this stuff. And some people don't even know that their partner is experiencing these symptoms of ADHD or things like that. And it does get taken the wrong way, which is, you know, that's a one thing that I would say awareness helps, but I just also don't know with like relationships, even if you know someone has ADHD and you're dating with someone with ADHD, after a while, it's not going to, you know, that, that excuse is going to work anymore. And I hate to call it an excuse, but eventually they're going to get a little ticked off at some of the things you do. Right. And it gets to that point where people, and I've had it where, you know, the, the other partner will say, you know, uh, we got to deal with this and don't tell me, I don't want to hear about your ADHD, which I, uh, you know, I always try to respect the person not in the room because they have their own life trajectory and what maybe they put up with with past dating partners or whatever. 
And maybe they're just not up. I say this respectfully. Maybe they're just not up to, you know, a relationship with somebody with ADHD, or particularly if it's untreated or whatever. And and it, it doesn't always have to be something with ADHD. Um, I mean, it could be. I mean, th there's a thing I think I saw on Twitter. You know, for, to what degree you want to take. But somebody was talking about they were dating somebody with ADHD, but they cheated on them a couple times. And somebody, some respond, and <laughs> this is why I don't put too much out there, railed against them saying that that is unfair. You're you're not being, you know, they, they use some other phrase that's being insensitive or that's being biased because, but that person, even whatever the explanation is, they don't want to be cheated on. So that's their yeah, the person without ADHD. So anyway, going back to and you know, and what you implied in there, in some settings it could be, oh, this person's great, they're a great friend, but in the relationship, somebody who says, you know, you know, did you pay the Wi-Fi bill? Um, there's there's a different relationship. So um, you know, it so the answer is yeah, relationship issues. I think going back to, you know, why do we have executive functions at all? It started with relationships. Um, and it's been one of these things more late to the game in terms of some of the work by Gina Para and Melissa Orlov on married couples with ADHD. Um, but I think it comes up a lot. Um, and, and it can be like that. You said that mixed bag. It's very setting and context and relationship um, specific at times. Diane Beaton in the UK, she did some nice research on um, interviewing uh, adults with ADHD about their experience of criticism by others. So in general, the largest source of criticism overall was inattention, which gets at procrastination, poor time management, forgetfulness, things like that, more than just distractibility. Number one in relationships was impulsivity. Um, and also looked at, um, you know, what you know, the criticisms, but also the things in relationships that helped and having somebody who understood and accepted their the the friend's ADHD uh, or looked into it, or there are some other protective factors. But a lot of times, like, you know, people feel teased due to their ADHD. And it might be somebody who thinks they're, it's a well-meaning joke, but, oh, this is Jerry time because you're always late. And that can be funny in the right context, but it can also wear on somebody because it's it's sort of, you know, you know again, how how somebody um, reacts to it. So, you know, this is why the the idea of rejection sensitivity is out there. The sort of the buildup over time of missing social cues, um, you know, sort of like that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer not joining in reindeer games anymore because somebody says, oh, why do we have to do it this way? Why don't we come up with new rules for the game? It's like, no, we have to follow the rules. You're not following them, so we're not going to invite you anymore. So, you know, in, in my forthcoming book, I know this is self-serving, but it's about adult ADHD and anxiety, a, a workbook. Um Two of the chapters focus on relationships because they're a big. They can be a big source of anxiety and that uh, the concerns about how others react um, and you know using some of the skills to you know cope with that and and the emotions because we have these social emotions and I think going back to executive functions coming up or relationships, two of the strongest and most apparent social emotions are shame and guilt. Now they are like pain. We want to have the capacity for pain because that what's that's what helps us recognize, you know, if you pull a muscle when you're exercising or you're sunburned outside, so you can take care of it. Um, guilt is the um, the feeling associated with perception that we've made a mistake or hurt somebody's feelings, and so that is good because we can apologize or make amends. 
But very often individuals, even if they have made a mistake, individuals with ADHD, they'll have excessive guilt. Oh, that person will not want to do anything with me. Or um, I missed my meeting with Dr. Ramsey. He doesn't want me as a client anymore. You know, things like that, even though I go, oh, I figured you probably forgot it. You know, when do you want to reschedule? Um, yeah, I want you to show up and things like that. But um, it's not the the offense. It's more like jaywalking rather than a felony or something like that. And shame is um, guilt magnified because it's the perception that you violated community standards. Now, these can be things that happen, and shame can be an understandable response, but it is also in the it also serves the function of how do we reestablish, how do we correct this and things like that. But shame can be excessive. So this could be somebody who, and and normal, you know, a whole bunch of people have this stuff happen, but, you know, maybe shame at getting a DUI or a shame at um, the IRS picking, you know, an audit from the IRS because you, know, you fudge some numbers or having an extramarital, extra relationship affair and getting caught in it. These are understandable reactions, but they can also generate how do we try to make amends and repair the relationship or move forward. So we don't want it to be crushing, um, but, you know, it's understanding the social emotions, how they function, but also how they can be magnified unfairly you know, especially among adults with ADHD, who they'll feel shame about, I don't know, wearing white after Labor Day or something like that, which nobody else notices. And I don't even know why that's a thing, but it's just the one I, the example I use, or using the wrong fork at dinner. And they say, oh, I must be thought this. I can never show my face because that's where, you know, the, the feeling of shame and community standards or violating community standards, that's why often it's averting eyes. I can't look people in the face. Um, and you know, I can never show my face there again. Some of the metaphors that we use tie in with some of the, the biological functions of feelings. This question goes with anxiety and a bit of the shame aspect of things, but do you find that more adults with ADHD experience social isolation? Um, that's a big area that I started to do. I experience it all the time, but it is because of the shame factor. And I feel like with adults with ADHD, you know, cutting off your social cues. And I know once you guys become adults and everybody, you know, leaves high school, you stop hanging out. Just It just happens. Everyone has a life and goes their separate ways. But with uh, adults with ADHD or just adults in general, I've noticed that there is less time to hang out with friends. Like a lot of my friends are 25. They all want to go to the bar and do stuff like that. I'm more like as soon as I get home, I'm not really trying to go anywhere. I mean, I'm happy to if I get forced in a situation like that, but I like more time by myself. And also, you need to have social skills to be social creatures. So that's a good thing as well, too. But I'm curious on your thoughts on social isolation, if it affects more people with ADHD. Well, you know what? With, with you know, it is harder to socialize in general, I'd say, as a trend after uh, high school, after college, where you're pretty much in communities surrounded by other people plus or minus two or three years your age so it's and you have classes and a lot of so getting you know becoming free-range adults where we're working and some of the self-selection that you described like okay i'm, I'm not going to go to the bars anymore but i still want to have contact um but going back to the the isolation or the withdrawal which isn't We'll differentiate that from maybe the, the shrinking of the social group, at least in terms of who we socialize with, go out and do things with, invite over or visit or things like that, because we can, and it is the wonder of the, the positive part of um, you know social networking is being able to stay in touch better 
with our friends at a distance. Like, like I have college roommates who I have not seen from graduation, but I still can, you know, you know, text like when the school football team, if they're doing well or doing poorly, get a message here and there. So I still feel connected, even though I haven't seen them in person for a while, uh, for a long while. Um, but the the shrinking of one's world, um, pulling back, um, and it may be from, um, you know, I mentioned rejection sensitivity. Rejection isn't an emotion. It's the sadness, the depression, the anxiety that comes from rejection behaviors, which can be um, active rejection. You know what? We can't include you. We can't bring you along on the ski trip or, you know, you, you didn't get the money here in time or passive rejection. Oh, somehow I must not be in the group text anymore. Things like that. It can be teasing and a whole host of other things. And these sorts of losses of groups, okay, I'm not included anymore, can lead to somebody, I mean, or force them to have fewer contacts and then maybe be a little more sensitive or less likely to put themselves out there. So, you know what? It, I would imagine that, yes, there may be more of a likelihood of that happening, especially as it, there might be fewer opportunities for reaching out and finding other people. And if we add into that things like, because um, another place that we have at least some social contact, even if we're not going out to the bar or going to the gym with people, is the workplace, even if it's just, you know, we have our work friends. But then with ADHD, if there's um, statistically inc increased likelihood of more frequent job changes and starting over and, you know, having to meet people again, but then maybe not. And depending on now, if we're working virtually, um, which can be a good thing. So um, it's a very long-winded academic. No, I do hear about that more, the world getting smaller and not having some go-to people and even stuff like if I had a flat tire, I don't know who I'd call. Or if I need a ride home, having a procedure, you know, and, you know, a minor procedure at the office, but they won't let me drive myself home. Um, I don't I don't have anybody to call. There's maybe a little more more of that. And also, um, you know, more likely to break up like um, more frequent uh, romantic partners because relationships end. Well, Dr. Ramsey, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. I know we kind of covered the range of topics here on this one, but I really appreciate it, man. Um, is there a place where people can find your links and um, Twitter? where anybody can find your books. Do you have any links like that? Yeah, probably the best place. I have a website, um, www.cbt, T is in Thomas, not D is in David, because sometimes people hear CBD for ADHD and they get really excited. Get some of those so oils, it's, man. <laughs> www.cbt, number four, the letters ADHD.com. So I'll have a link to this podcast, other podcasts, the books out there. Um, the, the, the forthcoming one I think is due in, in May. So I'm just, it's, I'm waiting to get copy edits back. And so that's, that's in, in progress, but the, the website is probably the best way it has a contact form, but my, my email is my last name, Ramsey, R-A-M-S-A-Y. Make sure you get the A in there at CBT for ADHD.com. And I'll make sure I link those all in the description for people to be able to click on. And I appreciate the time and thank you everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Stay tuned for next episode.